My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. Hello. For the many people who've been talking about poverty for years and years, the lesson of Marcus Rashford's achievement is not only the power of celebrity, but also the importance of how an issue is framed. The abstractions of inequality statistics aren't nearly as powerful as the concrete image of children going hungry. Today on Bridges to the Future, we're looking at two big ideas about how to reframe arguments for progressive change. In a few minutes, I'll be talking to Jane Davison, the architect of a revolutionary piece of Welsh legislation, and to Lord John Bird, founder of The Big Issue. They both think the idea of future generations can be the key to unlock a new coalition. But first, I'm talking to someone who thinks that it's focusing on children that can turn the dial. So I'm delighted to be joined by... Kirsty McNeil from Save the Children. Hi, Kirsty. Hi there. Remind me what your role is at Save the Children. So I'm Executive Director for Policy, Advocacy and Campaigns. Wow. You must have to have quite big business cards. <laughs> you're joining us today principally because you're one of the authors of a relatively recent Save the Children report, which is called Do Right by the COVID Generation, Intergenerational Justice in the Decade of Recovery. I want to explore why you've produced the pamphlet and what you hope to achieve from it. But before that, let's kind of get into the core of your argument. And we'll do that by asking the question we ask everyone on the Bridges to the Future podcast. So, Kirsty Meniel, what's your big idea for the kind of post-COVID world? I really think it's time that we repaid our debt to the COVID generation. And there's probably three ideas wrapped up in one there. So firstly, that they are a generation. So one of our mantras at Save the Children is that this experience of the coronavirus is universal, but not uniform. And when we say that, that's not in any sense to detract from the fact that some people have had it much harder than others. But there are some common experiences that cross borders here. So there are kids who are hungry in every country in the world. There's kids trapped on the wrong side of the digital divide in every country in the world. There are parents in precarious employment in the world. The second is that good and bad childhoods follow people around forever, right? And we know that from the data, but we also know that from our own lives, right? So my mum had early experience with the care system in the 60s, and that is still showing up in our family. It's still showing up in the decisions that she made and the decisions that I made. So if good and bad childhoods follow people around forever, we really need to do whatever we can to get children's interests now to the top of the agenda so we're not continuing to pay the price in the decades ahead. And thirdly, it's quite specific that we've chosen to frame this as a debt that we owe to children, and that's for two reasons. Partly because of what they've done for us. It's absolutely extraordinary what children and young people have done to keep the rest of us safe, what they've sacrificed in this period. But also the problems that we've stored up for them to inherit mean that I meaningfully think that they are owed big by us. So our big idea is there is a debt that is owed to that generation and paying it should be top of our agenda. And it's a very powerful document and very little that I can find to disagree with. But I'm kind of interested, I mean, obviously Save the Children produces lots of reports and lots of research, and indeed the report quotes quite a lot of your own research, research on the ground, research with the voices of, of children and young people themselves. But I'm interested in the reasoning that lay behind the production of this particular report, which is seeking, as it were, to use COVID as a particular way of drawing people's attention to our responsibilities to children, to the plight of children. Now, during the COVID pandemic, and we're still, of course, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, there have been various times when people have said, look, this pandemic draws our attention to a particular type of social injustice. 
So we saw that around key workers. So I do events around good work and people often say the thing about the COVID pandemic is it's drawn our attention to the problems of low-pay precarious workers. Clearly around the Black Lives Matter movement, we saw a particular focus on the way in which this pandemic has particularly impacted various minority communities in this country, but also other parts of the world, that it seems to have particularly impacted certain communities. Obviously, the people who are most at risk when it comes to COVID are actually old people. I mean, massively more at risk. I think they're probably, I don't know, 10,000 times more likely to die than children. I'm just interested, was there any sense in which you thought, well, hang on, does the world need another kind of attempt to say, well, COVID particularly highlights this group or this cause? So it's a great question. And it's actually one of the reasons that we decided when we were sharing this with people to frame it as a guidebook to the 2020s rather than a report was for exactly that reason. So Save the Children produces huge numbers of policy reports that are aimed at policymakers. So they're aimed at people in national governments or the multilateral system. And it's saying to them, here are decisions that you could make with a stroke of a pen that would make things different for kids. The reason we framed this as a guidebook is because it's actually a guidebook to the decade for all of us, because it has questions for all of us, because all of us every single day make decisions that determine whether we're being great ancestors or not. So this is aimed at you every bit as much if you are in the police force, if you run Wigan Council, if you work at Disney or Pixar, There are so many people in institutions and organisations that are making decisions every day and the sum total of those decisions make up what we as a generation are doing for the next generation. So we hope that people treat this as a guidebook to the kind of questions that they should be asking themselves. So it's not so much just here's a checklist of recommendations that you need to follow. It's here's some questions at a sort of paradigm level that you need to be asking about the kind of ancestor you are and who you want to be. So the document is very, very broad. And that's another thing I want to talk to you about. And of course, in many ways, the reason I'm having this conversation with you, Kirsty, is you have a political background. So I know that you think very deeply about how it is that particular content research breaks through, impacts, makes a difference. So the report looks at economic issues. It looks at the particular challenges for children. It looks at sustainability and the future of the planet. It looks at governance issues in terms particularly of giving rights to children and bedding children in governance processes. And it also talks about the kind of necessity to rebuild internationalism, international cooperation. Again, obviously, with a focus on helping children. So you've gone very broad in this approach. And I wonder whether you considered, well, is this the right thing to do? That you know, Obviously, the obvious critique would be, well, basically, what you've done is you've just taken a list of very conventional progressive demands, and you've simply taken those demands, and you've built a rationale for those demands around the specificities of children. This is really just a progressive manifesto, which almost uses children to make arguments that you would want to make anyway. So this is a great challenge, right? But what you might call conventional, we could also call like the latent common sense of our species, right? And this has been the great dilemma for people, not just young people and children themselves, who are, of course, let's remember, like the greatest generation of activists there have ever been. So they're wrestling with this dilemma too. As advocates on behalf of children and young people, the thing we've been wrestling with is How is it possible that these are common sense questions, right? Everybody thinks that we should do better by the next generation than we ourselves have received. Everybody thinks there's something appalling and perverted about a situation where anyone might think that their kids will do worse. There is so much latent potential in a movement for children, right? So we've got three parts of that movement, potentially. You've got The children's workforce, which is not just paediatricians and child protection social workers and teachers, it's actually everyone who goes to work and whose decisions at work impact on kids. That is a massive constituency of people. You've got the children's volunteer force. No one in my family that runs a brownie pack or coaches under 11's football would ever dream of calling themselves a children's volunteer, but that's what they are. And then there's the third sort of leg of that movement, which is parents themselves. So psychologists talk about these kind of moments in a human life and there's only a handful of them that are real transition moments where you get to decide who you're going to be so one is the point at which you leave the family home whether that's for college or university 
or to move in with a partner, massive moment of transition, the point at which you hold your firstborn, massive moment of transition, and the point at which you lose your first parent, massive moment of transition. So the number of people that are either parents or in the children's workforce or in the children's volunteer force is absolutely huge. There's so much latent support there, which is why we can talk about these things as the common sense of the age. And yet, and yet, as a society, we opened pubs and hairdressers before schools. So there's clearly some massive disconnect between what we all want to see happen and actually how things play out at a policy and political and cultural and national level. So for us, part of the point of doing this report was to try to say, how do we get inside the horns of that dilemma and actually try and reconcile these ideas and really mobilise that latent support that children and young people have, but that somehow has never managed to cut through politically? To what extent is the challenge here to get people to think of all children in the way that they think of their own children or the children they know? Robert Putnam produced that book, didn't he, a few years ago. I remember him coming to the RSA to speak about it. I think it was called Our Kids. And what Robert Putnam argued in that book, the sociologist, was that he felt that when he was growing up and his parents talked about our kids, they meant the kids who lived in the town and lived on both sides of the tracks. And the two sides of the tracks then were not nearly as polarised as they are now. But that now when people talk about our kids, they just mean their own children. And, you know, you hear that kind of theme popping up. And Richard Reeves wrote a book a few years ago just about the lengths to which middle class people go to protect their own children and make sure their own children pass on. And it, I've often con- thought that in a way, and I obviously this of my own friends, you know, who are progressives, but yet suddenly go, well, actually, I'm sending my child to a private school, that sometimes it is protecting our own children, our own children's interest actually flies in the face of the interests of children as a whole. And I think I'd say that advocates and campaigners have been part of the problem here. As so often, it's the things we do to ourselves or the things that mean I can't sleep. And I feel that the people who've tried to build a constituency for children have actually made it harder for people to make the empathic leap than it need be. So every time we talk about child poverty, if you yourself are an adult who never experienced poverty, that is too big a leap, right? It's too big a leap to imagine what it's like being six and knowing when payday is or when the benefits are coming through. No child should know that. But if you never experienced that, it's almost impossible to imagine it. However, what I think is quite easy is to empathise with and imagine what it's like to feel left out because everyone has felt that at some point, right? So every adult carries inside themselves that deep wound of the time they were not picked at games or the time they weren't invited to a party or the time they thought that somebody was their best mate, but they ended up sitting beside somebody else on the school trip, right? We all carry that experience within us. So we all know what it's like to be left out. And I really wish, and, you know, I did some work on this when I worked in government and then have been part of that movement for children ever since. Like, I really wish the people that were advocating for kids just talked about how rotten it is to be left out and what poverty does to make that happen, right? So the real experience of poverty, we can say it's a moral outrage and a question of social justice. And it so happens, I believe that's right. But if you want to get everybody in the country to be on your side, you need to explain that it's a feeling of being left out if you can't go on the school trip, because even though the entry to the museum's free, the Ribena at lunch is not free, or your mum says you can't go to the party, because even though it's in a family home and you're not being charged to go bowling, you'll be expected to take a present, or you might have made some new mates at nursery, but you can't have them over for a play date because there's no food in the fridge, or you'd be embarrassed at how little room there is in your sitting room for them to play like those are the experiences being left out when we talk about childhoods being shortened or good childhoods being curtailed that's what we're talking about and everybody can relate to that if only advocates for children would actually talk in those terms that's really powerful Kirsty. but it takes me to another kind of dilemma that i think progressive causes have in terms of their communication which is that you want to say and the evidence of course supports you the psychological sociological evidence supports you that harms done to children are harms that last that you know children in their infancy today may be alive at the turn of this century and still carrying pain from their childhood or having passed it on on the other hand 
we don't want to fall into a kind of deterministic, fatalistic trap, which says that children who have suffered, and your report is full of powerful statistics about how many children are suffering in so many ways, that kind of writes, in a way says, well, we're just going to assume that those kids are going to have a terrible life. And also, as you've said, Kirsty, if you do focus on this question being left out, well, even very privileged children can be left out. All childhoods involve a sense of being isolated, like all teenage years involve anxiety. So how do you get the kind of balance of getting people to think about the way in which childhood deprivation, childhood exclusion casts this long shadow without sounding as though you're one of those people who wants to say human beings have no agency? So this is one of the many things, as I say, that keeps me awake, because I think in all the movement building work I've done, in all the mobilisation work I've done, I've always said that like the two emotional preconditions for really effective mass mobilisation are a sense of solidarity and a sense of agency. So people need to feel a connection to other people, but they also need to feel that if they do something to manifest that sense of connection, it will make a difference. So agency is absolutely critical as a precondition. And I think the thing that keeps me feeling hopeful when we do look at the data is Yes, you can see the effects of terrible things continuing to show up, but you can also see the effects of the interventions and you can see that in the data, but you can also see it in a really visceral sense. So one of the things that we work on is children who are caught up in conflict and children who become refugees as a result of fleeing conflict. And one of the things that we've learned in recent years is the effect of bomb blasts. So if you are a kid caught up in a bomb blast, even if you survive it, you will die earlier because your body ages prematurely, right? So the chemical reaction that your body has to being caught up in something like that will age you prematurely. And if children are exposed over a really long period of time to a stressful situation, to bombardment, for example, you can trace that in their hair, right? So the response that they have to toxic stress shows up in their hair. But so too does the effect of the intervention. So people who work with kids who've experienced trauma or toxic stress can chart in a strand of a child's hair the point at which they started getting therapeutic support. So we shouldn't underplay the magnitude of the effect of trauma or deprivation or malnutrition or any of the other terrible things that happen to kids. But equally, we shouldn't be pessimistic and underweight the effect of interventions as well. And we know more and more with every passing year about what effective interventions can still do to rescue childhoods that have gone off track, but can get brought back on track by the things that we choose to do together. And that takes me, Kirsty, to a final question, because our conversation will be appearing alongside a conversation with Jane Davidson, who was one of the architects of the Future Generations Act in Wales. And so I'll be talking to Jane about what work does this focus on the long term do in terms of affecting our decisions today. And again, in your report, there's a strong emphasis on the long term. But isn't there also a kind of tension there? Because both at the level of policy and also we see in our own lives, often the imperatives of children drive us to say we must act now and forget the long term. And, you know, for people, for example, in debt, one of the reasons they might be in debt is because they have felt the need, completely understandable need, to respond to the needs that their children have now and to worry about, you know, tomorrow in due course. This kind of question of, connecting the notion of children to the need to emphasise the long term. Are you saying that thinking about children is something which inclines us towards the long term? And if that's so, does that detract from what we need to be doing for the children who are suffering here today, now? So I think there's a question about who the we is in the sentence, right? So one of the things I keep trying to sort of say to my teams that are full of like really passionate people who's self-description would be activist or campaigner, right? That's who they are in the world. That's their calling and their vocation, not just their job. One of the things I keep saying to my teams is campaigners make things possible, but it's politicians that make things happen. And actually social change is about a huge number of people in a really delicate balance doing a dance. So you have campaigners that ask these kind of paradigm questions about What do we want to happen for our kids and their kids and their kids after them? And politicians who can be incentivized to ask those questions too. But it's only when you get both sides asking the same questions 
and feeling that each side has a legitimate role in the debate that the real magic happens. So for me, this is not something that I hope will be used to beat politicians over the heads. It's such a common critique that politicians are so short termist and they're only looking at the next election cycle. And whenever anyone says that, I just want to think, well, you know, whose fault's that? Whose fault's that? Like politicians will do rightly as our electorate ask them to do. So we've got some fantastic politicians in Wales and elsewhere who want to think intergenerationally and at an ancestral level. And there's some activists and campaigners who want to do that too. So I think it's finding the allies on the inside and the outside who want to be part of that paradigm shift that I hope we are on the brink of making as a species. Well, Kirsty, it has been, as I absolutely knew it would be, a completely fascinating conversation. The Save the Children report, Do Right by the COVID Generation, Intergenerational Justice in the Decade of Recovery, is, I'm sure, available on the Save the Children website. Is that right, Kirsty? Absolutely. Thanks so much for giving us your time. My pleasure. Thinking about children does encourage long-term thinking, but could we make that encouragement even more explicit? My next two guests certainly think so. So I'm delighted to be joined by two people who I've known in various ways over the years. Jane Davidson, who's just, I guess, an ordinary citizen in Wales now, but was a very senior politician in Wales. And we'll hear more about Jane's story in a moment. And Lord John Bird, who has been an incredibly important social entrepreneur and activist, of course, he was the founder of The Big Issue, amongst many other things that he's achieved throughout his life. And now he is in the House of Lords, although continuing to be an activist in lots of ways. And there's a link between Jane and John, and that link will be disclosed in a few minutes. So, Jane, I'm going to start with you. Welcome to Bridges to the Future. Hello, Matthew. How nice to be with you. Now, You've recently published a book, and I've read it, and it's a very interesting but very interesting book if you're a policy wonk, because it's about policy success, and policy failures are very easy to describe and very engrossing. Policy success is much more complicated, and it's a bit of a kind of thing for policy wonks, because it's not simple policy success. But the success you're writing about in the book is that you are maybe the chief architect of the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act in Wales. And that's one of the things we're going to be talking about. So, Jane, the book is really about where this act, which was passed, I think, in 2015, 2016, about where it comes from. So why don't you start us off with telling us about the history that led to that act being passed? Well, I think the history is very important because when devolution was granted to Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales back in 1998 for the incoming new legislatures in 1999, the Government of Wales Act that actually set up the new legislature in Wales contained this provision whereby the new institution should promote sustainable development in everything that it did. Now, interestingly, some people on this call will remember that at the time, there was a lot of interest in sustainable development and that there were officers across the whole of the UK, Agenda 21 officers, bringing together issues around social inequality and the environment. And only in Wales was that commitment turned into a core element of the Government of Wales Act. So as a new Assembly member in 1999, I and all my other 59 colleagues inherited this new duty, which was unique to Wales. We had to promote sustainable development in everything that we did. It was unique to Wales. It wasn't in Scotland. It wasn't in Northern Ireland. And the book is really the journey on how hard it is to take a big idea without defining it at a time when policy is moving in a very different direction. So how hard it is to take a big idea that is countercultural and look at how you might deliver it. So in this podcast, Jane, we talk fundamentally about big ideas. And I'm not going to ask you what your big idea is, because that's what we're talking about, which is this Future Generations Act. So tell us at the core of it, what is that act about? Well, the core of the act is factoring future generations 
into policy thinking. The Act has seven goals, which actually respond to the climate challenges, respond to equality challenges, encourage the enhancement of biodiversity, encourage looking at physical and mental health, creating more cohesive communities, identifying and supporting heritage and culture, and looking at global responsibility. But alongside those goals, which are actually in the Act and therefore in law, there are five mandated ways of working. If people are going to adhere to the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, they have to demonstrate that their decisions are long-term, that they're preventative, that they integrate the goals, that they collaborate with each other, and very importantly, involve people about whom decisions are being made in those decisions. Now, those two components, the goals and the five ways of working, together create a values framework against which all future decision-making needs to be tested. And it's that values framework that is the big idea. Because for the first time anywhere in the world, in law, we now have a mechanism in Wales to deliver on the Sustainable Development Goals and a mechanism to deliver on the Brundtland definition of sustainable development to ensure that anything done by the current generation does not compromise the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Now, I didn't know when I proposed this that this was going to be unique. And in many ways, I'm desperately sad that in 2020, it is still unique. But Wales is the first country in the world to factor the interests of future generations into law. Well, John Bird is going to be involved in trying to change it being unique to Wales, and I'm going to come to John in a minute. But before I do, and by the way, it is a shocking reflection on the parochialism of the English that so few people in England are aware that on the other side of the border this incredibly radical initiative has been taken. Just a couple more questions before I go to John. In terms of lessons, what I derive from the book, I think, were two lessons. One is persistence, that the attempt to build sustainability broadly defined into the way in which the Welsh Assembly went around its business, it was subjected to two very critical reports, in a sense, two reports saying, well, this isn't really happening. And it required you to, in particular, but others, to keep coming back and not to give up. It must have felt when those difficult assessments came through that people felt this is just a waste of time. Indeed, some people said that. So one lesson for policymakers is persistence. And the second is the engagement of civil society, that from the very beginning, this was not just something you were working on in the corridors of power. You were mobilising a broad constituency and that indeed you yourself, Jane, exemplify this. Because in many ways, and it's a fascinating element of the book, you make a lot of progress on the Act as a minister, but actually the final achievement of the Act is achieved when you're out of government and you're acting as a civil society actor. Would you say those are the two lessons, persistence and civic engagement? I think that those are two very, very important lessons from the Welsh journey. I think persistence in the context of You know, once I realised, because like all my other colleagues, when we came in in 1999, I don't think any of us knew about this provision in terms of the promotion of sustainable development. But once I embraced it, it just felt to me like it had to be at the core of everything we did. So everything I ever did as a minister, whether that was in the context of education or as environment and sustainability minister, and even all the way back to the point when in my first year I was the deputy speaker of the National Assembly for Wales and I convened a youth panel that has now subsequently turned into a youth parliament. I mean, It just felt to me as though it was critically important, particularly in a small country, to engage as many people as possible in long-term challenges. Because what we historically do is actually we operate downstream, i.e. if we want to build something and we haven't got the money, we load future generations up with the debt. If we want to build a nuclear power station and we haven't decided how to deal with the waste, we load future generations with the responsibility of dealing with it. So we've been operating in completely the opposite way to one that secures both our as humans and nature's continued survival. So I think that point about persistence is critical. But there's a second point about opportunity. 
Because if I'm absolutely honest, the only reason that we have an act in Wales now is actually because the incoming Conservative Liberal Democrat government in 2010 dispensed with the Sustainable Development Commission overnight. That was the final catalyst because I realised that despite there being an independent body that was serving governments of all political persuasions across the UK, that was providing high quality advice, they were not protected in law in any way. And I realised that if we really wanted to promote an agenda around looking after future generations, we needed to protect that in law. So it's that notion about persistence, but always having an eye on opportunity in terms of delivery. But your second point about civil society, we could never have achieved this without the support of civil society. And what has been really interesting in the Welsh context is when we've been out to consultation right from the very beginning in government in Wales in the year 2000, and every single consultation or engagement exercise since, the population in Wales, the civil society of Wales, the engagement of those people has been critical because it's always come down to the same kinds of outcomes in terms of what the people of Wales wanted from its government. And what is astonishing, and you've probably picked this up, Matthew, in the book, is if you look at the very first scheme that was published in the year 2000, and you look at the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act of 2015, there are huge common elements in terms of the outcomes that are proposed. And I think the point about the small country is that you have the flexibility to do things in a small country. You can pilot and test. And as we saw with the carrier bag charge I introduced back in the late 2000s, within four years, there were carrier bag charges across the UK. We've got children's commissioners in all part of the UK, something that started in Wales. So small countries are great test beds. And now the big opportunity here is can we lift this legislation? Can it be applied in the UK context? And that's where the work of John comes in. Great. Well, you, you wonderfully segued for me, Jane, to turn to Lord John Bird. So, John, you're behind an attempt to introduce a Wellbeing of Future Generations Act or a version of it in Westminster. Tell me why you seized on to what Jane has achieved in Wales. I know what you're trying to do in the UK or the English context is slightly different, but tell me why did that inspire you? Well, largely because I had started the big issue with Gordon Roddick of the body shop in 1991, and we became very, very good uh, helping people who had fallen into the trough of homelessness. But after about 10 years, I was very cheesed off with the fact that we were always mending broken clocks. And what we really need to do was move on and prevent clocks breaking, as I said in the Times for the 10th anniversary. And then I spent probably the next 10 years trying to convince people that what you needed to do was prevent homelessness and all the best emergencies in the world don't lead anywhere. There were people going on, we need more and more social housing. We need more and more support for the poor. We need more and more support for the needy. And I'm saying to myself, and I'm arguing with people, but why are you not looking at why the methodology or the mechanisms that lead to people slipping into homelessness, slipping into long-term poverty, why is it? that you have all these advocates who are advocating for social housing, but they themselves don't need it. So they're advocating for other people to have social housing. So you have this system of the needy being helped by the unneedy. And there is a real problem there, because if we live in an age of giving, we also live in an age of taking. And taking destroys the opportunities of people to move out of their need. So there were all these big questions. And then I realized, of course, everybody was going on about how John Bird was this, oh, he thinks outside the box. He's this beautiful butterfly. And everybody blowing smoke up my derriere. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, there's something going on here. And what I didn't realize, of course, was that the only reason people were saying what a perfect piece of thinking outside the box was because the box wasn't working. 
So I had to work out the box. Everybody has to work out the box. Everybody in the big issue and all the other manifestations of the work all over the world, it's because the box is not working. So in 2013, I began the process of trying to get myself elected into the House of Lords. And it took two years and I got in and I went in and I said, I am here to cut the throat of poverty, to destroy poverty, to dismantle poverty. I'm not here to make the poor comfortable. I'm not here. You can get on with all your efforts to assuage your sense of guilt or your sense of well-being. I'm only here to dismantle poverty. That led me inexorably towards the Welsh model because what the Welsh model is once and for all, it is a prevention methodology. It is about preventing us always being grabbed by the ankles and tripped over because of things that we did 10, 20, 30, 50, 500 years ago. What is Black Lives Matter all about? If it's anything, it's about grabbing us by the ankle and tripping us over because many, many of the institutions and many of the systems that created Great Britain and then the United Kingdom are there because of things that were done in the past not in our name, but in the name of past generations. So we are always being tripped up by the past. i give you one good example I've used in the House of Lords many, many times and in my arguments. And that is when Baroness Helena Kennedy admitted about 10 years ago in the Observer newspaper, when she said, the interesting thing is, when I was a young barrister or a young lawyer, I spent all my efforts trying to protect the rights of the accused. And now, 20 or 30 years later, I have to say that the laws of unintended consequences have come to slap me in the face because those laws are the laws that mean that only about 2 or 3% chance of us getting successful rape cases through the courts is because those very laws that we used are now used for the pernicious fact that we don't protect our young women and young men from rape and not always young. And those are the laws of unintended consequences. So I was drawn to Wales because I could see for the first time in my life, here were people talking about prevention, 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 prevent the stuff, the ordure from hitting the fan before it actually happened. And John, tell me what progress have you made in your crusade for a UK stroke kind of English version of the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act? Who have you got on board? Where are you in the process and how hopeful are you? Well, we've done a lot of politicking. We have many, many members of both houses who will support it. We have gone into kind of partnership with Caroline Lucas. So this becomes a development in both the Lords and in the Commons. And the second reading, which was supposed to be had in November, but the Prime Minister has put back all private members' bills until, I think, the end of January. But it gives us more time to get ready. What we've been doing is building, first of all, an office that can do this. So we've been getting support from people so that we can have a campaign a manager somebody called Alex Phillips, who is a Green councillor down in Brighton and the former mayor, and also she was an MEP. So she knows about how mechanisms work in government. And what we've actually done is we've just rallied people to the whole idea. So we've gone out to businesses, we've gone out to individuals. The other thing is that fortuitously, in the most horrible sense, is that COVID-19 came along, and that really did create a rude awakening for me and the big issue. And that was we'd worked for nearly 30 years on people who had become homeless through almost, you know, the predictability of failure and through social problems laid down even before they were born. So we were always dealing with people who were homeless. And then suddenly we had to wake up to the idea that there might be hundreds and thousands of people who would fall homeless and they would fall homeless because of COVID-19 created poverty due to unemployment and homelessness coming out of not being able to pay your rent or your mortgage. So we then had to say, how do we combine this work of today with the work of tomorrow. So we came up with something called the Ride Out Recession Alliance, and that has gone and got very big businesses, people like Unilever, people like Deloitte, 
BT, national housing, local authorities, individuals, and people like Shelter. And what we've done is we pulled together an alliance of people who are trying to create jobs and create opportunities. Those people caught in COVID-related poverty will be able to get out of it without having to lose their homes. And out of that, we've managed to convert those people, virtually all, to the idea of a future generations bill. Because if you look at the way that we handle the NHS, if we'd sorted out many, many of the problems that Jane had tried to address in Wales, if we'd sorted out all those long-term problems of living in a low-wage economy, producing people who couldn't eat because they didn't have the money, didn't get the right opportunities and all that. The NHS was 85% almost full. That's almost total full before the COVID hit. And that is largely due because previous generations never addressed the questions of education, the question of nutrition, the questions of creating a high-wage job culture of upskilling the working classes or whatever they choose to call them now because they don't like that word and all those sorts of things so you have the past always hitting you so therefore what we've done is we created an umbrella called today for tomorrow which combines our work of today with the well-being of the future generations bill and we're putting them all together so it's a kind of alliance that starts this morning but extends hundreds of years into the future Well, that's fascinating, John, because it's kind of similar, I think, to what Jane did, this kind of combination of persistence and grabbing opportunities in order to build a coalition. Look, I'm going to ask you both one last question about this kind of future generations perspective. I'll start with you, Jane. It seems to me that the arguments for this emphasis on the well-being of future generations, there are three different types of arguments. And I just want you to, I know you're going to say all of them are important, but I want you to kind of tell me, in a sense, which are the most important. So there's an analytical argument. So the analytical argument is simply that, you know, for a variety of reasons, human beings tend to think of the short term rather than the long term. We don't plan for the long term. And that part of the purpose of a future generations perspective is to change our analytical frame so that we try to think about 20, 50, 80 years here. We try to plan in those kinds of terms. Then there's an ethical argument. And the ethical argument is simply that we owe a debt to future generations. We need to take the unborn of the future as seriously as ourselves when we make our judgments about priorities. And then finally, there's a political argument. And the political argument is that when you read the Future Generations Act, it is broadly a progressive manifesto. And so the political argument is by talking about prevention and the future, it's a way of framing progressive arguments for sustainability, social justice and democracy in a way which makes those arguments have a kind of broader base of support. So, Jane, the analytical, the ethical, the political, which would you say is the most significant element of what you've achieved or trying to achieve with the Future Generations Act? I think I have to say, first of all, Matthew, that you're right in the sense that I would certainly say there are elements of all three. But I have spent a lot of time thinking about this. And I think primarily for me, it is an ethical argument. We're in a situation now particularly, I think, my generation, where we benefited hugely from the vision of the post-war governments and people who wanted to ensure that people lived in good homes, council housing, that had proper education, that had a national health service. And my father started on the first day of the national health service. So that was such an important factor in our own home. And They did it because they'd just been through absolute devastation. Now, we in our generation have created a very different kind of devastation, often in the name of progress, the name of progress, but not being progressive, the name of progress that is extractive without putting back. And therefore, I find myself in the position today as an ordinary citizen in Wales, as a mother, As a grandmother, when I look at my mother, who is staying with me now during COVID, and I reflect that she was born at the turn of the century, the 19th and 20th century, and my grandson has been born at the turn of the century, the 20th, 21st, between the two of them, 
they could rack up 200 years in terms of their life expectancies. And over that period of time of my mother's life, she has seen the world deteriorate in the context of our natural environment because of the nature of what is called progress. So it is a moral and an ethical agenda for me when I look at the fact that I have children, I have grandchildren, I want them to have children and grandchildren. Yet the very short termism of politics means that increasingly we're starting to focus on decisions for tomorrow that might not even survive till the following day. And that a decision, for example, about Brexit takes preference to a decision on feeding children. And I think that therefore we have morally and ethically got our priorities wrong. And what I am so proud of, because as you said at the outset, Matthew, I was not there when this act actually went through the National Assembly for Wales. I may have proposed it. I left it as a bomb for the incoming government and next administration. But I am delighted and proud that the politicians of Wales voted through an ethical values framework to guide decision making to ensure that future generations would have politicians who were prepared to think long term, were prepared to be preventative, as John said, were prepared to involve people in decision making and prepared to collaborate to achieve that. So, of course, it's analytical. It is evidence-based. Of course, it's political because it couldn't have been achieved without it. But essentially, it is the ethical commitment that was made at the first Earth Summit. Humans have the right to live in harmony with nature. And if we do not live in harmony with nature, we actually effectively remove humans' right to live. This is profoundly ethical, this is profoundly moral, and it is the profoundly ethical and moral challenge of our times. And John, I'm interested because your previous comments in our conversation, you've talked about different elements of this. You've talked about the analytical, the need to understand that if you fail young children today, you are creating problems in terms of people who will find it difficult to thrive in the future. James emphasised the ethical point. You're working with the Greens. You're a small-p political activist. For you, what is the balance of the analytical, the ethical and the political in driving you to try and create a Wellbeing of Future Generations Act for the UK? Well, that might be too posh a question for me, (laughs) if you forgive me. (laughs) I'll do my best. Um, To me, we have to just find a way of encountering the future at a time when we're all thinking instantaneously and we're all being pushed around by the here and now. And as far as I'm concerned, one of the things that you really do need to change, and I hope I'm answering it there, is thinking. We have to change the way we think. I was on a an APPG Zoom, you know, one of these distance things, you know, it's a cross-party parliamentary group thing last night and it was all dealing with the emergency it was dealing with the emergency it was dealing and i left feeling incredibly disgruntled and depressed because it was about future generations and future generations weren't even mentioned and i think we really do have to do something which is the most ridiculous thing on earth which is to admit that we're not getting it right that all the emergencies that we're doing actually, you cannot solve an emergency by emergency thinking. You need to respond to the immediate and you need to respond to the emergency. I believe the future has to be about changing the pedagogy, the way in which we support our children, the way that left-behind children like me, who come from absolute disastrous backgrounds, are not just put into the prison system because they're antisocial and criminal, but are the family is supported in the very, very early stages. I think we need to be educating our parents into how to be parents. And we have to begin to break this vacuous extension of social failure that we live in at the moment. I also believe I'm really, really disappointed in our wonderful universities, which are always operating, trying to produce 
a wonderful little bijou experience that never converges and coalesces into a grand solution. I'm really concerned about the way that people keep getting hoodwinked into believing that they can solve the problem by making a contribution, you know, giving money to a person in the street or in a more kind of pleasant way, voting every four years or five years and thinking they're going to change anything. I think we need an an intellectual revolution that is of such a profound nature. And I see all that possibly in what Wales is trying to do. What I found really interesting when I spoke to people in the commission in Wales was they were saying, we're almost getting through to people who run the local authorities, the people who are beginning to see the future coming out of a fog. And when I see that, I feel really good because I know that it's the thinking that we need to change. Because if we recognize we've got a problem, which is the fact that we wander always into the future and hope for the best, if we can begin that. So I'm for an intellectual revolution. And in my opinion, the intellectual revolution has started in Wales, and Jane Davidson is the alma mater, I don't know if I'm using it right there, is the alma mater of it all. And I'm driven by the UN Sustainable Goals. Absolutely brilliant. I feel there is a future for us in the UK and hopefully in the rest of the world when we see this. But like Jane, I am a bit glum that it's only in Wales and it hasn't broken out yet. So let's hope the breakout does happen in England and hopefully in the other devolved areas of our country. Well, thank you both enormously. I hope that a lot more people will find out about the Future Generations Act. If you want to know about the fascinating story of how it was achieved, then I recommend Lessons from a Small Country, which is Jane Davidson's book. You can find out more about that on Jane Davidson's website. And if you're interested in participating in John's campaign to create a Future Generations Act for the UK. You can go to the Today for Tomorrow. I've just googled Today for Tomorrow and you go straight to the site which is focused on the Future Generations Bill. Jane, John, thank you very much and John, good luck. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.